לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to a very special edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Malamit, usually from Highland Park, New Jersey, the Highland Park Conservative Temple Kargishnachim. But today we are all gathered here in New York City at Anshe Chesed, the home of Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Rabbi of Anshe Chesed in New York City. And we have Rabbi Barry Chesler here of Solomon Schechter, Day School of Long Island. We have, this is the, 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 the synod of Parsha <laughs> Torah. We have gathered in person to have a reunion of Parsha Talks live. It's, it's a words, you know, Dine Mamanot Bishlosha. Exactly. We are baked in to judge cases of uh, commercial law. We, not only we're a bit in, but we're, we're a bit chavirim, bit rachamim. Indeed. A house of mercy. As people know, we are uh, the the um, a in consists of three rabbis, and we can excommunicate people. <laughs> so anybody that that's a nice segue into the parsha, right? But before we do that, uh, here's we just want to give a shout out. I, I I would like to give a shout out on behalf of my colleagues to to uh, Cantor Mike and Lisa Weiss, who are going to be honored this week at uh, our synagogue, and we we are wishing the Mazel Tov. Uh, Sunday, March 3rd is the, our, our gala. And of course, we want to thank all of the people that are watching and listening to us as they prepare for Shabbat in various ways. And uh, we, of course, are thinking about our friends and family in Israel, day 143 of the conflict, 143, 142. We're on Sunday. We're Sunday. Sunday, yeah. We are thinking about the hostages and praying for their release, praying right. that, that something, and you got your t-shirt sh- sh- on. You know, my shawl outside has, the, has a big poster with all of the, uh, from the original, the original uh, list of all the hostages. Of course, more than 100 of them have been returned, but to bring them home now is my t-shirt. I picked this t-shirt up in, uh, in Hostage Square in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv, Machzirim Otam Habaita Aksha, bring them home now. Bring them home now. That's our prayer. This week's Parsha, Kitisa, it, it breaks up the Parshiot at the end of uh, the book of Shemot. The Parshiot at the end of Shemot, the five Parshiot, which is Truma, Tetzava, Kitisa, Vayakil, and Pekude, for the most part, they deal with the, the, the sanctuary, the structure, and the clothing. Last week, Parsha Tetzaveh, lots to do with the clothing and the different accoutrements of the Kohen Gadol. And we have some unfinished business at the beginning of this parsha, namely funding of the sanctuary and the incense altar, things that seem in the sequence to be um, the, the the kind of footnote. But and in particular, by the way, also the names of the artists. The names of the artists: Betzalel, Betzalel ben Ohaliyav, and Betzalel ben Ori ben Chor, and Ohaliyav ben Achisamach. Lovely midrash. B'Tzalel is from ben Uri ben Chur, Lamatei Yehuda, he's from the tribe of Judah, and by Midrash tradition, it's not clear in the Torah, 
uh, Hur is is Miriam's husband. So he's Miriam's grandson, Moses's Moses's uh, nephew. Super estimable and uh, lineage. Ohalia ben Achisamach is from the tribe of Dan, the least estimable. So the midrash, the midrash says you have you need the whole society, you need Absolutely. the fancy people and the humble people working together. And everybody, Ohalia is also an artist, even though he's said to be from a very humble tribe. Okay, so I'm going to set this up. We have the the instructions; they're all laid out. We have the artist. We have a, a, a small command for Shabbat. We're not going to talk about that, although we could spend lots and lots of talk, time yeah, talking let's, about it. Don't, let's not talk about it. Let's sing it on Shabbat. On Shabbat. Okay. And then, Vayitena Moshe Kichalato Lidaber Ito. When he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the two tablets of the pact, stone tablets inscribed with the finger of God. So that's our scene we're starting. God, God gives Moses the two tablets, and they're there. It's, it's, it, this is the moment. This is a great moment. It's like Moses at the top of the mountain. It's, the, the symbolism is that it's the most information that he could get about God, and God kind of hands him two tablets. These two tablets, which are going to be the first tablets, um, are God's tablets. Well, it is a peak experience. Yeah, okay. And then the people are waiting. So we go right now into the crisis. The crisis of this moment is that the people are waiting. The people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. They gathered up on Aaron. And you know what happens? They tell Aaron, we need, we need something. We need something to look at and make us a God. We want an Elohim to walk before us. Because this guy Moses, we don't know what's what happened to Moses. So it's interesting that it actually doesn't say that they want to look at it. Just said they wanted to go before them. Yeah, they want something to follow. Okay. So Aaron gets them to part with all their jewelry, and Aaron takes it from their hands, and they he makes Vayara Aaron, he builds a, a, a an altar. And uh, he says, "Tomorrow we'll have a we'll have a a, a holiday." So you pointed out that they ask for Elohim, and Aaron is giving them some sort of Elohim. Yeah, but Aaron, you know, like judging Aaron's job, what he's done right, what he's done poorly, you could argue that Aaron is trying to keep them in line because he wants them to worship yud heh yeah. he, want, he wants them to worship the true God. Aaron maybe is in an impossible situation. The people are rioting, um, and he doesn't know what to do, but he's trying by saying, Chag l'adonai machar, is to say, let me, let, me, let me keep you connected to Hashem and not lose, lose your bearings completely. The people wake up, they make sacrifices, v'yashevam they eat the chateau, they drink, and they get up to play hockey. <laughs> no, I think it's mixed dancing. That's what they practice. They're, they're, they're enjoying themselves with each other. It's different from so, the revelation. So they don't say that it's an orgy, but that's what we're left to think. Well, right? so it's it's saying, you know, our translator is very clear. They rose to dance. <laughs> but it was mixed dancing. That's mixed the part dancing. that's important. Okay. And, but 
It's also worth pointing out here that we have a similar scene at the end of the 40 Years of Wandering at Ba'al Pa'or, where there's also the same kind of activity. And so the B'nai Israel's experience of the Midbar, the wilderness, is bracketed by these two orgiastic festivals dedicated to the worship of other gods. Okay. And, you know, it does it does all fall out on or about Mardi Gras. And here we are at Mardi Gras. We just, we just a week or so ago had Mardi Gras, and that's what the people were doing. God is really angry and says, Lech red, go down, kishichet amcha, your people we brought on the land, they've acted basely. And, and God, and Moses staves off God's anger. But before I get to it, you know, it's so important, I think, sometimes to read the Torah out loud as you did, because we notice things that we would not otherwise have noticed. And God here emphasizes that Moses brought the people out of the land of Egypt, which helps us understand their original concern that Moses is God and they need someone who can represent the one who brought them out of Egypt, who clearly isn't God mm-hmm. okay. from the people's point of view. So the the we talked before we started recording and, and it's one of the ways of, of wrestling with this passage what exactly is the terrible thing are they disloyal to hashem are they in anxiety about moses's role and is the calf uh some some representation of the invisible god is the calf some representation of the leadership power that moses had fulfilled and now and now they think is gone um it's 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 a, a rich passage that admits, I think, of no one single answer. Several of these things are possible. So God, Moses uh, staves off God's anger and beseeches God, why destroy these people? Let not your anger blaze forth against the people. Let not the Egyptians say, I'm reading verse 12, chapter 32, it was with evil intent that he delivered them, only to kill them off in the mountains. And then um, it's... Uh, the, the clincher, verse 13, Zechor Lavraham Lidzchak Israel. Remember your servants Abram, Isaac, and Israel, how you swore to them by yourself and said to them, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. So Moses is invoking God's first, first kind of promise. And, and even at the burning bush, when God reveals himself to Moses the first time, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He says, I'm, I'm holding on to this. I'm holding on to that idea that you have a connection between yourself and our ancestors. And you got to remember that. Don't destroy them. Don't destroy them. And then, uh, so God relents. Okay, only the people that sin will be destroyed. Well, so that also raises a curious phenomenon, because if only the people that sinned are destroyed, then what was Moses' concern? Did he think everyone should have been killed? That everyone was guilty, even though God apparently only found a small number of them guilty? I think I think Moses has got God's number here, because Moses understands that the, the way that God works is that when God is disappointed with how things turns out, turn out, he destroys them. <laughs> Right, so so the the world the world creates is turns out to be bad. So God says, I I got to start off with a new world. So He finds Noah, and He promises that He won't destroy the world with Noah. But here He has His His tactic is to find a people, make a family out of the people, make a, find a person, make a family out of the person, make a people out of that the family, 
and sees that the family ends up not, not so good. So he says, I'll, I'll start over again. And I'll choose you, Moses, to be the person who leads the family. Moses says, nothing doing. You promised our ancestors you got to keep the promise. It's amazing. It, it, it is absolutely amazing. I, I think you're you're on the you're on target here because you know God is if is saying, you know, let me at him, let me at him, and knows that Moses he invites Moses into the argument, right? Just as uh just as with uh, with Abraham, God invites Abraham into the argument about the fate of Stomba Amorah. It's as if here, uh, God and Moses both know the pattern, and Moses, uh, you know, God says, "Now let me be that my anger may blaze forth against them." Well, why would God have to say that to Moses? Let me be. What? So Moses persuades God that this is a moment for, even though there's the there's the bit about what what will the Egyptians say, which sort of seems like a, a appeal to vanity a, a appeal to vanity <laughs> a silly thing but what you said Elliot I think is is really quite powerful this people has a history it has a covenant and don't give up on the history there's a terrible thing that's happening here and Moses is still up at the top of the mountain he doesn't know exactly the dimensions of what's going to go on he's going to learn that in a second but it is a it is a vote uh, of confidence and a vote to stick with an important ongoing history. And when God says, Moses, history's over, let's start again with you. Moses says, nothing doing. Nothing doing. It's, it's a, in a way, it's the greatness of Moses here, who, who, is, who is enabling God to really be God. And, and this might sound kind of weird to, you know, to, uh, to our ears, the sense that, that God is also learning here. I mean, we, you know, we normally don't think of, the, of God as, as getting a, you know, educated. But Moses is educated. Right. Well, so as long as we're allowing for multiple interpretations, we have a colleague, Rabbi Bill Berman, who's a parent at uh, my school, Schechter School of Long Island, and uh, was a rabbi for many years in Comac, New York, on Long Island. And he suggested that part of this is reverse psychology on God's part, is that what God needs to do is get Moses to take ownership and leadership of the people because Moses himself is ready to give up on them. And God's role here is to get Moses to recognize that these are in fact his people and that he has to shepherd them. And God puts it on himself, so to speak, in order to let Moses grow himself. Okay. So a civil war happens. There's a, there's a real conflict in, in the camp at that point. And then when we get to chapter 33, God says... Look, um, I'm taking you up. We're going up from here uh, to the land that, that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to send an, uh, an angel messenger, etc. Verse 3, to the land flowing with milk and honey. Because I'm not going with you. I'm not going to be inside the people. You're a stiff-necked people. Because if I go among you, I'm going to destroy you. You're, going to, you're just going to irritate me so much. You're going to anger me so much that my anger will blaze forth and I will destroy you. This, the people hear this. How they hear it, we don't know. They hear this and they, they go into mourning. And and this, this problem of God not being with them, I think, it's the threat of abandonment, the threat of a divine abandonment, and, and they can't handle it. Moses takes his, his tent out of the camp. We have that. 
I, I want to just turn, I, I know we're going through this very quickly, but we turn to the next chapter, chapter 34, where, where it seems as if Moses says, look, I, I'm not going to take them further until you reveal yourself to me. And this, this passage is really difficult. We're going to try and, and break through this, this passage where, where Moses said, look, I need you to show me your 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 presence, our any et kvodecha, our any na et kvodecha, verse 18, chapter 33. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you the name God and the grace that I grant and the compassion that I show. And already I don't understand what, what, what's going on here. So do we assume that that in this passage, in 33 from 12 to the end of the chapter, God takes back that claim that I won't go in your midst. Like I, I, I won't go in your midst. I you make me so mad, and when I get mad, bad things happen. It's kind of kind of a nuclear reaction, and so God said that's the way it's going to be. And Moshe says uh, again, nothing doing unless we have the intimate connection. We're not going right, but God here is also being hyper literal, so He's not going to go in their midst. But the denouement is to be the Ohamawitis to be moved outside the camp. And so that God will actually be outside the camp rather than within the camp. So he's not in their midst, but he still has not abandoned them. Well, but I want to just draw our attention to verse 19, which the English doesn't do it justice because in Hebrew it says, um, which as Elliot read, I will proclaim before you the name Lord and the grace that I grant and the compassion that I show. But in the Hebrew, this echoes God's identification at the burning bush. The Ehayah, Asher Ehayah. It's a similar construction. And it's a reminder here, I think, that just as God was at the bush with Moshe, he's still here. Okay. So let's let's now go to the point where God makes this personal revelation to Moses. That's chapter... 34. We recall that with the first set of commandments, God chiseled them out, God carved them, God kind of wrote on them and gave them. Here, God is saying to Moses, Psal lecha shnei You carved two tablets of stone like the first. I will inscribe upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Okay? And be ready, be ready in the morning, and in the morning, come up to Mount Sinai, Present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Okay, so it's pretty clear. You're going to have an overnight on the mountain, and then it's at, at basically right at, at daybreak, at, you know, right at sunrise, you're going to go up to the mountain on the top. You're going to stand on the top of the mountain, the meaning of heaven and earth, basically. No one else should come up with you. No no onlookers, nobody. The mountain is is empty of people, no one else, and even animals, the flocks, the herds, no, nothing. It's going to be, you know, a, a sterile zone, okay? Moses carved the two tablets of stone, like the first, and then early in the morning went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him. That's what, taking these two stone tablets with him, they're, they're empty. The Lord came down in a cloud, okay? And now in Hebrew, Adonai God comes down in a cloud. And he stays there with him. Now, this is where it gets complicated. Okay, I, I'm going to read it with a beat or two of silence. He comes down in the cloud. He stays with him there. 
Vayikra, B'Shem Adonai. So it says, and he called in the name of God. So who's calling? Who's responding? What's going on here? How do you understand? This is, this is the, uh, there, there are some things that are in doubt because you don't know the facts, and there are some things that are in doubt because the facts are never sufficient to, to answer the question. This is, this is the latter kind, the complication of this story. J just before, at the end of 33, when God says, well, Moshe says to God, you know, you, I, I need to see your presence. God said, I will bring my goodness before you, the karati b'shem Adonai, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. So it seems at one level that God has come down to Moses to proclaim his own name, to proclaim God's own name, to reveal something to Moses that Moses needs to know, that Moses needs to experience if this is going to go further. So one possible way to read the story, to read the verse that you just said, or translate the verse that you just said in, in, the, in that uh, frame, God comes down in the cloud, and God's uh, now Moses has been told uh, Moses has been told now you you present yourself to me. So the yitiatsev verb sounds like it's the fulfillment of what Moses was told to do. So God comes down in the cloud. So Moses stands with him there, and now on the basis of thirty three, where it says vekarati I think it's God proclaims something about the divine nature. But it could be, instead, Moses invokes the divine presence. Yeah. So I, I have this picture of, like, you know, this science fiction, like a beam, okay? That's like the cloud, and there's like this beam, and there's like a tractor beam. God and Moses, they're in one column of, of light, let's say. And whereas before, God says, I will proclaim the name of God here, in a, in a way that that is consistent with a lot of oppositional behavior that Moses has and other leading biblical characters. That rather than do what the Bible says he does, Moses is going to proclaim God's name. Okay. So Moses is saying God's name because this is the moment of contact. This is the so, moment. Wait, wait, wait. This is the moment that they're the two are together. And so I, I read it with a kind of pause that that it's a it's a moment that lasts, you know, for who knows how long. It could have been an instant, it could have been an hour, it could have been hours. And it could be a moment in which, you know, Moses is in this meditative kind of trance where he is receiving all the transmission. He's receiving all the transmission of God. It takes, you know, it takes two seconds to transmit mega, mega, megabytes, gigabytes of information. It takes so, he's so got the best Wi-Fi in the world. He's got the best Wi-Fi in the world. God is transmitting gigabytes of information in this kind of, you know, uh, light connection between Moses and God, and Moses gets it, and Moses proclaims the name of God. And then what happens is, after Moses proclaims the name of God, it's Moses that says, Adonai, Adonai. Okay, so I want to offer a slightly different interpretation. I thought you were going in the right direction. Uh, <laughs> but, but then you lost me. So... In scholarly circles, the four-letter name of God, Yudhei Buffet, is considered God's proper name. That's a proper noun. That's God's name. And Elohim is kind of a generic name. So I think, borrowing from mystic circles, that God's name actually begins with El Rachum Khan, Erechapayim Baruch 
And Aronai, Aronai here is kind of a nickname, and the name is filled out. That it's not what you think it is. It's El Erech. Uh, and then it's not clear how far we should go with it. Is God's name only the merciful part, or does it include the punishment part at the end? I think that's a matter of conjecture. So you, this is this is really interesting in, in multiple ways. One of which is it, it, it is sometimes attractive to read. You know, th this is a, a modern reading. The philosopher Franz Rosenzweig, the German philosopher, died in 1929. Uh, you know, he wanted to say that revelation is not content, it is only presence. And you can sort of see how a passage like this would work if read in that way. So, Golden Calf has happened. A terrible rupture. A restoration has happened. God says to Moshe, I'm going to give you a, the intimate the intimate experience that you need to go on to know that this is not over. We, we, we're not, you know, we're not going to separate here. I'm not going to kill everybody. Uh, History is not coming to an end. And Moses is, it, it could be that it was just the presence. And Moses's response is, my goodness, Adonai, Adonai, in all your excellence, you are a God of forgiveness. And the, the experience, the human experience of divine presence gives that human uh, the ability to go forward. Now, I want to ask, this is, I mean... So I, I, I want to just, I, I want to underscore that meaning. I think that, that this is a human response. This is not God speaking. This is Moses speaking. What you're saying is that, that this is Moses relating the content of the gigabytes that, that were transmitted to. And, and this is what the people really need. Yeah, exactly. Now... Okay, I'm going to guess that most of our partial talk faithful are are loyal fans. Loyal fans, um, you guys need to come through on the merch here a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> we need to come for we have we have our T-shirt, but but um, I'm going to guess that most of our partial talk listeners are are familiar with Jewish liturgy, and and we know this passage, of course, is is. We say it on Yom Kippur, we say it on fast days, we say it on holidays when the Torah is taken out, and we, of course, place a period in the middle of the sentence yeah. that changes the meaning, because what it is that the, this passage says is, I am tremendously merciful, I am mostly merciful, I am totally faithful, uh, I am patient, Rav Chesed, uh, abundantly kind, ve'emet, totally faithful, notzer chesed la'alafim, for a thousand generations I, I keep track of, of my kindness, nosei avon, I forgive, avon v'fesha v'chata'ai, I forgive all kinds of iniquity and wrongdoing and mistakes, v'nake, and we, Jewish liturgy puts a period after cleanse, but the thing is that that changes the meaning of the sentence. What the sentence actually means semantically is I'm tremendously faithful, Tremendously kind, thousands of generations of kindness. But I want you to know, I'm going to get you in the end. I'm going to. Uh, there is going to be punishment in the end. There cannot be no punishment. Uh, uh, if, and and if you want a God of justice, that's one of the things that we want out of religion. We want the claim of justice. Then there kind of does have to be punishment. And so I'm. I I ask you too. I ask the the world out there to think about this. Um, what is the the audacity? And what is the the religious takeaway from the fact that Jewish tradition 
has repunctuated this verse to mean the opposite. I think it's it's absolutely fascinating. You know, this is a kind of discussion that that we have in 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 the you know the the introduction to whatever the theology or philosophy classes. You know, they show how this sentence actually does have some kind of transition and transformation through the course of Tanakh. Take, for example, the Book of Jonah, which recasts this in a different way and kind of lops off, you know, all the all yeah. the, the difficult stuff. And so it, it it really says, look, you know, the 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 way that the people perceive God, the way that we experience that part of reality. First of all, it's it's, it's transformed. And second of all, we, we we focus in on the compassion because the the punitive anger is something that we none of us can can stand up to. So I think the rabbis recognize, unlike some other people, that the God of the Torah, the God of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, is actually a God of love, and He's not solely a God of justice. And while I agree with you, Jeremy, that punishment is necessary. Punishment cannot be meaningful without the possibility of redemption. And the repointing of the verse suggests that there is a promise of redemption, that you can sin and you can be punished and life will go on and you can restore your relationship with God. Well, let me ask it in a different way, because this is such a, you know, the verse is so prevalent in the liturgy, especially liturgy of the high holidays. But we also have it on on the Chagim we recited when the Torah comes out of the Ark. So what is the effect of saying it? What is the effect of repeating it all the time during Slichot, for example? And what is the effect of, of saying it? Are, are we uh, The way we're reading it, the way I want to read it here is saying, this is Moses' reaction. This is not what God is saying. Moses is saying that, and so when the congregation then in liturgy, in the, in the, in the experience of Tefillah, says this, says it once, says it twice, says it three times, they're, they're A, recalling Moses, and they're, they're kind of bringing it back to God. Well, I, I think it goes further than that, because there's a pedagogical element in it. We see God here as being merciful and compassionate, and it's to instruct us that we also have to be merciful and compassionate. It's not enough to have a God of compassion if there are not human beings who are compassionate as well. There's a, there's a Talmudic passage which leans to the other reading, not Moses' response. Leans to, <laughs> lead, lead, and, and all of these are possible. Uh, the, the ambiguity of the passage is what is one of the things that makes it so rich. Uh, that that God is... And the Talmud says in, in like the literary and, and religious creativity is just electric. It, it means that God put on a talit like a shaliach tzibor wrapped himself in the cloud like wrapped himself in a tali and says to Moshe, listen, whenever you're in trouble, here's what I want you to say. Yeah. And, and so when I think of that piece of Agadah, uh, what I what it means to me is, listen, we've been through a lot worse than this before, right? We, we You and I went through the golden calf and we managed to make it through that. Whatever it is that you did, whatever trouble you're in now, we're going to get through this too, and I, I forgive you. And we're going to you're going to access that that hope because, like, when we're in trouble, look, I mean, you know, we've all been in difficult, you know, personal relationships, pastoral relationships. The the somebody just came to me yesterday in the shul. We spent some time together pastorally in a real tremendous crisis, 
real, real terrible places. And, and you, you can run to a place of despair. And that piece of Agadat, um, that rabbinic usage from the Talmud and Tractate Rosh Hashanah of this passage says, if I made it through the golden calf, we can make it through whatever you're in now. Hang in there, buddy. All right, we, we just have a couple of minutes. I, I, we can't end the Parsha without the way the Parsha ends, which is, it's so stunning. Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets are with him. The testimony are in a sense, and it says, that he, Moses was not aware that the skin of his face was radiant since he had spoken with him. It's like he's glowing. It's like, I don't know what this He's is. radioactive. He's radioactive, right. So God has like beamed on him and, and Moses is glowing. He's like, he's been, he's, he's set on fire, right? He's literally on fire. He's and a soul on fire. He's a soul on fire. Okay, so, so and, and Aaron sees this and people were scared, right? They saw Moses' whose face was radiant. They shrank they were terrified flowing close to him. So Moses called out to them and Aaron, the chieftains, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and when Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. You want to comment on that? Yes. This is one of the most stunning passages in the Torah because, first of all, we can ask why he needs the veil, but we're running out of time for that. So what I would like to suggest is that Moses veiling himself makes him like God. So even though Moses went up the mountain, he doesn't quite come down the mountain because Moses is never going to be seen by a human being again after he puts the veil on. He only takes the veil off when he is in the presence of God. When we go back to the beginning of the golden calf, they want a God to go before them because that man Moses is not here. Okay. Well, Moses comes back, but not completely. And now he's even more like God because he is veiled. That's that's incredibly complicated because their reliance on Moshe at that point, at the beginning of this parasha, is what leads them down in their panic to do something terrible. Yeah. And so maybe this whole experience has made it worse. I want to just reflect on it for a moment from the uh, from the inner inner interior spiritual. Moses had had a spiritual experience which is really incommunicable. He can't share it with his fellow okay. human beings. And there's a way in which uh, he can only share it with God. You know, sometimes I like to, I like this image that God is the one who knows me better than I know myself. God really is, is you know, in inside my heart, or inside my mind, inside my spirit. And this could be a metaphor or a figure for the way you really only take off your veil when you're, when you're with Hashem, uh, in human communication and human societies, we're always going to have a little bit of veiling. Um, Can I? I just want to say that you know we talk about the veils, and and I, it would you equate the veil with the curtain in the ark? I have my the curtain in my ark is a veil, mm-hmm. and we open it, and and I, it's hard not to make the connection here. You mean you mean literally the the curtain in your ark in Highland Park? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you meant you. I thought you meant my conception is so. A then the question is: When we open the ark in the synagogue, do we dare to see God? Exactly. And so what we're doing with audacity is yes, we are yeah. because we do. You know, I have to have one comment. Yeah, on something that Jeremy said. So Mark Bu has this 
a resting idea that God is closer to you than your own skin, which fit in very well with the idea that God knows you better than you know yourself. And it's always good to quote Martin Buber. Nice, always good. It's always good to end with Martin Buber. We're at the end of our time. It's been a joy to be together in person as we recorded this Parsha talk. We're thinking again, the hostages, the war, everybody, Am Yisrael, and hoping that the study of Torah can give people comfort and maybe diversion, but also insight and thinking. And of course, maybe this will shape the thinking that people have as they approach a very complicated Parsha. Thank you so much. It's been great. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Great to see you. And see you next week on the next edition of Parsha.